Today on The Topping Show, Coles targets kids and a boycott begins. IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes busted for fake Little Mermaid reviews. Costco, HP, and HPE all miss Wall Street targets, while NVIDIA hits the $1 trillion market valuation for the first time. Governor strikes down non-compete laws. Biden administration slaps fentanyl sanctions. And Shopify faces a lawsuit. All that and much, much more on The Topping Show. Thank you for taking the time to tune in today. Today's episode of the Topping Show is sponsored by Topping Technologies. Topping Technologies is an IT value-added reseller and services company with a special proficiency in IT security. Heck, I see their founder at least twice a day. Gotta say he's quite handsome and brilliant. He's me. That's that's a joke. If you're an IT leader or a business owner, you need a little assistance with your IT, reach the team at sales at toppingtechnologies.com. Now, going on to the business part of the podcast, you have NVIDIA hitting the trillion-dollar market cap point for the first time thanks in large part to their boost in sales coming from the design manufacture of chips related to ai now they did dip below the one trillion mark but they are still i believe the sixth or now the seventh company in history to hit that point the co-founder jason Huang is still the ceo and leading the company and given the great dependencies we have on technology and them making pretty much the best graphics cards on the planet bar none and they're also expanding exponentially seems like they're going to be growing for quite some time now on sad tech news you also have hp hewlett packard they missed their wall street expectations so for the quarter now hp they're two separate companies now you have hp hpe hewlett packard is a traditional one you think of where they manufacture consumable products such as laptops printers and that's about it. Granted, they have a large portfolio, but for most people, laptops, printers, desktops, PCs. Now, they missed their mark for Q2, but should also note that Dell and Lenovo, two other big PC makers, they also missed the mark as well, both citing a decrease in consumer demands for PCs. Now, the global PC shipments are down at 30% from January to March, it's actually at a point lower than before the pandemic, according to IDC. Now, specifically, the sales for HP's personal systems segment, which include desktops and notebook PCs, dropped 29%, and the printing segment fell about 5%. And I'm not too surprised. Now, my company, the IT company I own, is actually an authorized reseller and services company for Hewlett Packard. And in terms of the consumer demand, or when we're talking to other businesses, since we facilitate needs of businesses, more often than not, a lot of those businesses have been moving to Lenovo and the Dell past 24 months especially. There are a couple end-user businesses who have are die-hard HP fans, and they have a couple laptops that are quite remarkable, but it seems that the consumer demand is shifting more and more to the competitors, as well as the industry decreasing ever more, including for the desktops, as more and more companies are going laptops. That trend has been going on for quite some time. Now, the CEO, Enrique, he actually noted that, quote, from a demand perspective, especially on the consumer side, the second half is stronger, unquote. This is during an interview he had with, with uh, Reuters. And that is true basically for all businesses. I mean, Q3, especially Q4 fiscal calendar year, that is when the sales really come in for most of them. And HP, 
a lot of the business is end users, but it's also businesses as well. So you sell direct to consumer. Think of if you just go on their website, you buy it off an Amazon or Walmart.com, where have you. But they also sell to businesses. So they have two avenues. On the other side, you have HPE, Hewlett Packard Enterprise. As the name says, enterprise, that's more directly for businesses. You're talking about servers, storage, networking. Rudimentally speaking, it's, you know, rack mount. You see big rack, you toss a server in there. It's where the internet lives. Most people will never see one. Um, they're called data centers. They're fascinating from a technological perspective. But that company, now completely separate from HP, they also missed the mark, unfortunately, as well. So its revenue for the quarter ending April 30th was $6.97 billion compared to the analysts that were expecting 7.31. So that's a, that's a pretty big miss. And they also noted that the quarterly sales for the company's compute segment, and again, in that portfolio, compute for them means servers, not laptop computers. So a little bit of the vernacular just to specify. So their server sales were down about 8%. And their storage, that was down 3%. So they did note some of the other segments are growing with their HPE Evergreen, which think of it of how you lease a car. Basically the same concept with the technology. They ship you 10 servers, and every time you need one, you just turn it on and you pay for it when you turn it on. Simply put, that's the concept behind it. Also helps transition the company to more of a as-a-service business model as more and more businesses are moving away from the traditional, I buy a piece of hardware and I run it into the ground or I use it for 10 plus years, everything's going to a monthly, quarterly, year, you know, it's more of the recurring revenue. That's what every business from technology to razor companies are focusing on. So it is prudent and it's good that HPE is furthering their investment in that part of their portfolio. And time shall tell to see how much they grow that throughout the year. Now, other interesting business news, you have Costco. Even they missed their quarterly earning revenue rest, uh, estimates. Now, they claim it is part to shoppers cu cutting back on the non-essential spending. Of course, if you look at Costco, they do carry a lot of the staples that you need around your house. I mean, you got their foods, beverages, but they also have huge parts of the store that have you know home furniture, toys, electronics, and many Americans don't know the difference between a need and a want, but let me reiterate, those things are not needs. Those are all wants or nice to have, some might say. I remember when I first moved halfway across the country to start my new job, I didn't have money for, I, I just threw everything I owned into my car, drove here, I didn't have money for furniture. So I just nailed pallets together to make a desk and you just make it work. Because again, a desk is nice, but you can live without it. And that might have cost me maybe a dollar thirteen in nails. Actually, no, I had some nails. I had a box of nails for free from back home back in the day. An exceptional ROI, never to say the least. But they also noted that grocery sales are increasing at Costco, but the downside of that is, like most grocery stores, the profits are abysmal to say the least. If you look at grocery stores from Kroger to Walmart, the groceries part of the store, you're talking about a 2% profit margin, which is scary from a business perspective because one little mistake and you could be losing money. That's Barely enough to keep the lights on. So of course they sell they sell additional products. Why you go to a Walmart or Target, whatever, wherever you want to shop, they sell things in addition to the food that you see. Now, Costco's total total quarterly revenue was flat fifty three point six five billion dollars versus the expected fifty four point seven billion dollars. The only silver lining in the situation was that their memberships rose. 
So their quarterly revenue from memberships was $1.04 billion. Now, if you go and look at the calendar last year, same time of the year, that was $984 million. So I'm sure you have to, maybe they raised the pricing to uh, keep up with inflation. But that's the most important part of Costco is the membership. That's where that's how they make a profit. If you look at the founder of Costco, the whole business model is give the customer the best ROI. We want to give them a product for as cheap as possible. And they negotiate with their vendors and they can have their own in-house brands and labels to make that happen. And the reason they can do that is because they have that membership fee. So that's really how they're able to grow the company and actually sustain the business model. So it's important to note that they're increasing that number as well. Now, going out to the culture part of the podcast, you have the phenomenon of The Little Mermaid, yet another Disney remake, which one of my favorite metaphors for Disney movies these days is a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy. A fun little experiment if you're ever bored and you have a photocopier, you take a copy of something. Then you take a copy of that, and every time you do that, the quality gets less and less and less. That seems to be the theme for many of these Disney movies. They're not original. They're just rehashes of the same dang thing, usually making it worse and worse and worse. And this latest movie is no exception to that rule or that theory. Now, two interesting things. One, the movie not getting good reviews, but it's being manipulated. So you have IMDb, IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes both manipulating the scores to make Little Mermaid look like it's a good movie. So one of the most important things in life when you look at any statistic, always ask, what is the sample size? How big is it? Who is it? Where is it? What's the real story behind it? So if you just look at the first page, just look at the Rotten Tomato score of Little Mermaid. Now they say that the Tomato Master is 68% and the audience score is 90, 95%. Well, that sounds exceptionally good. However, if you click the details of the Tomato Meter, it goes down to 48% and the audience goes down to 56%. And they did the same thing with Captain Marvel, where they're selectively deciding which which reviews do we erase and which ones do we count. IMDb, which of course became owned by Amazon, they erased about 10,000 reviews for the Lord of the Rings uh, little series that they're making on their platform. They re just removed 10,000 one-star reviews because they're so viscerally hated because they had not it greatly departed from the actual literature and the spirit of the original works. Took many liberties and inserted politics where politics didn't need it to be. And the fans, of course, did not appreciate that. And they're admitting this too. So IMDb, IMDb, IMDb acronyms will never get to me. Now, they say, quote, our rating system has detected unusual voting activity on this title. To preserve the reliability of our rating system, an alternative weighted calculation has been applied. Although we consider all votes by users, not all votes have the same impact or weight on the final rating. When unusual voting is detected, an alternative weighting calculation may be applied in order to preserve the reliability of the system." Unquote. Which reminds me of one of the most prolific quotes in history. He who casts the ballot means nothing. He who counts the ballot means everything. It's the same situation here. They're manipulating the scores because they have now, they used to be very independent review sites that helped consumers get an idea of what the actual films are about. Now they're very much intertwined and dependent 
on those blockbuster production houses such as Disney. Now, the Disney film is also having a fiscal flop as well, or at least it's on track to. Now, there's estimates that they're going to lose between 50 and $100 million if the box office rate stays consistent with what is made thus far. Now, in the first four days, it made a mere $117.5 million. And I say mere because it's a Disney film that they spent hundreds of million dollars to produce. That's not a lot of money given the investment made for it. That's not even going to cover marketing. Now, also troubling for them, they did the race swapping, which especially in other countries is more problematic than here. Many people here were concerned where, again, it's only one way. It's never the other way around and doesn't resemble the original character. And some say that's partly why it flopped in China. In the first four days, it made a mere $2.78 million in China. That is perhaps one of the biggest business blunders in history when it comes to a movie in China. And that's especially important for Hollywood, which is why a lot of the movies are biased and very much praising China's government. That's sometimes half the box office is from that country alone. You look at people like in the Fast and Furious films, I believe John Cena made the terrible faux pas of accidentally saying that Taiwan exists. He learned Mandarin and apologized in, which is the language of China, saying that he, he didn't understand the situation because his holders, or rather the production company Universal, probably knew a lot, hundreds of millions of dollars were on the line. And again, the Fast and Furious franchise, most movies make a billion dollars, not collectively. One movie made a billion dollars, and about half was from China. Collectively, the whole franchise is worth more than $7 billion in total revenue. Astonishingly successful, fiscally speaking. Accurate to racing? Well, they go to space these days. Not so much, obviously. But it shows the importance of the international market. So, it's so the Little Mermaid movie is tanking in China, and it's estimated that the movie cost about $250 million to produce. Now, when you say produce the movie, that's, you know, you have to pay the actors, you have to pay the specialists, you have to pay the graphics designers, pay the, pay the editors to actually slice it all together. So that was, they're estimating that's $250 million. But then you have to factor in marketing. And marketing is one of the most expensive things with movies. They spent hundreds of millions of dollars getting the message out there just to let people know this movie exists. So given the account, not just the production cost, but the advertising budget as well, multiple sites are saying that they estimate the movie needs to make at least $625 million to break even. And they're estimating even if they can make $750 million, they might make a profit of $50 million. Fiscally speaking, that's a huge loss for Disney. Disney is a multi-billion dollar powerhouse and again, they're bleeding. Their stock is down. They're, the CEO, Bob Iger, is consistently cutting cost. In addition to just the regular staff, his goal is to, cost up, uh, to cut a little bit over a billion dollars in content, whether that's creating their own or it's they're paying their licensing to have it on the, the Disney Plus platform. But they need to cut costs left and right. And yes, they will not go out of business because of this because they have cash in the bank. They have more intellectual property than we could possibly counter-imagine. But it just goes to show it's a copy of a copy of a copy. 
if you really want to be innovative, the best companies of all time, they come out with a new product. They innovate. They take the risk. They gamble on new ideas. I mean, look, one of my favorite examples is Apple. They made computers for years. People thought they were crazy to come out with the phone. People thought it was going to be a huge loss to the company of losing them millions but millions and millions of dollars. Think of all the hour, man hours and fiscal materials they put into making that product. And now it's a core of the business. People know Apple as a phone company, which wind back the clock 20 years ago would have been, would have been out of, you would have been crazy if somebody would tell, tell you that. It would have been unimaginable. Where they took the risk and now they're one of the top phone companies on the planet. They're basically the alternative to Android. There's still three to five BlackBerry users out there. Well, kind of. Well, no, not really. But still, it was a big risk, but it was a big reward, and they changed the face of the company. And even many would say they changed the whole industry when it comes to telecom and you know personal devices. So time shall tell to see if Little Mermaid gets the nail in the coffin and becomes a business blunder. Right now, the outlook is not good. But you know, time time shall tell. Now, other interesting cultural news: you have Coles. Targeting kids and a boycott, yes, it has begun. This may sound familiar. Yes, it's pretty much a copy-paste of Target. Now, Kohl's was founded back in 1962 by Maxwell Kohl's. They're headquartered over in Wisconsin. And they, as of 2022, they have 1,165 locations. New CEO just came about six months ago, I believe, turning the company around. They just made a profit last fiscal quarter which given the economic situations and all the uncertainty, which is a huge business achievement. And of course, they decided to get political and more concerning for many people, get political with children. Now, when I say back in this case, politically speaking, they decided to have LGBTQ clothing for toddlers, babies, and they have onesies and all that kind of stuff. With one, within one day of people realizing they had that merchandise, their stock went down 5%, which, that's a pretty bad loss. Now, it went down 5%, and one of the most concerning pictures that was posted, it was a, a onesie, and on that onesie was a picture of a lesbian couple with a dog, three kids, one in a wheelchair, and a progress flag, which, this is all new to me, I had to brave or uh you know brave search that or some might say google search so that is the it's the lgbtq flag but with the triangle what is that little angle so it's the trans pride flag it's the it's the newest one and i think they need to expand the acronym again but another another thing branding is key you gotta stay consistent with the branding it confuses everyone but a lot of Christians, conservatives were not happy to see this, again, on children's apparel. For decades, these companies, you know, pretty much most retail clothing companies have had a pride section, especially for the pride month that they celebrate. That wasn't really a big controversy for most people because especially people, the big consensus was, you know, whatever you want to do in your bedroom is your own business. That was kind of the norm in the United States for many years. It's what conservatives were told when the LGBTQ community was fighting for rights, the big message at the time was, hey, this is, we want our privacy in the bedroom. You know, we're not going to go after your kids. We're, 
you know, we, we just want to be in the bedroom. And you're seeing this more and more where this is a onesie. Oh, it's for, I believe it was a eight month year old. It's, it's for a child and it's bringing in sexual themes to them. So that's why there's the big concern. I think you see in the business world these days, that's a big deviation that's happened in the past few months. It's expanded into that new part of the segment of children clothing, cl children's clothing and targeting kids. And I think a lot of people are saying, hey, this, this isn't what, what we, were, we were told. You know, we were told that it was going to be a private thing. You were not going to, this wasn't, this wasn't going to be a children issue. And many people are calling this grooming and maybe many people are calling it inappropriate. Now, personally, it'll be easy for me to boycott because I haven't been there in decades, so it doesn't really affect my life, but a lot of people go shopping for clothing consistently, and it'll be interesting to see how many of these boycotts can really culturally be supported in terms of what's the tipping point for the fatigue where people are overwhelmed by how many boycotts there are, because, again, this is a thing that most companies are doing. Bud Light was a precipice or the, the hair that broke the camel back, so to say, when it comes to these boycotts actually having some teeth behind them where there was fiscal pain for the company to actually feel for decades really it wasn't much of a any successful track record concerned is actually boycotting something now that it's been proven it's a use case now in business history for bud light they, they didn't just lose their stock by billions of dollars they are also losing sales so that was the big wake-up mo moment where people are starting to pay attention to these boycotts more and more because it's getting, as the uh, the youth might say, it's getting real, as they might say. Now, it'll be interesting to see how many more companies copy-paste these initiatives if they know it might lose them customers, but it will improve their ESG DEI scores, which those are the scores that get them funding if they want to expand the business from the banks. So it'll be interesting to see how do they weigh that scale or how do they how do they weigh those initiatives? If they don't do these things, they may be boycotted in the on the in they may they may themselves be boycotted by the folks traditionally, politically speaking, on the left. You've had bomb threats sent to Target just because they moved the materials to the back of the store in some states, not all of them, but just because they moved the materials of the uh, the trans clothing for the kids and the adults, they moved it to the back of the store. That caused bomb threats from leftists. Leftists being people radically on the left. Again, there are radicals on the left and the right. It's interesting to see which track record actually has more merit or rather has more proven facts showing the violence. Another topic for another time, perhaps. It'll be interesting to see, culturally speaking, how long will this boycott last and will, they have, will this affect their sales at a time where the company could barely survive? Time shall tell. Now, Going on to the politics part of the podcast, you have the National Labor Relations Board striking down non-compete clauses and agreements. Now, they claim that having employees sign non-compete is usually illegal, and the government is trying to crack down on the practice. Now, the key term being unusually, or usually illegal. Now, specifically, the National Labor Relations Board, NLRB, acronyms and government seem to be, got to sound smart, the general counsel, Jen Jennifer Abruzzo, she said in a memo to agencies that so-called quote-unquote non-compete agreements discourage workers from exercising their rights under the U.S. labor law and advocate for better working conditions. 
also said that she is an appointee from Democrat President Biden. And they also know that, quote, unless the provision is narrowly tailored to specific circumstances justifying the infringement on employee rights, or unquote. Now, not competes are one of those things where they've been around for as long as I can remember. I believe in Texas, they're being struck down more and more. From a moral perspective, I never had my contractor sign that. I, I like the Richard Branson approach to business where you want to treat employees and give them the tools so they can go wherever they want or train, train them so that they can go wherever they want, but treat them in a way where they don't want to go. So rudimentarily speaking, you know, give them all the tools to succeed, treat them like they're the best, and actually they'll want to stay. Now, I say that, but at the same time, there are certain industries and certain situations where you definitely need to not compete, such as if you're an engineer for an aerospace company, there's only three to four of those companies to begin with in terms of, let's say, munitions for missiles. The largest company, bar none, is going to be Lockheed Martin and Raytheon. The other companies like Northrop Grumman are more known for making the actual planes to carry the, the payloads. But there are only a couple companies... And if you have intellectual knowledge of the IP, of the intellectual property, basically the DNA that makes it so valuable, to go to a direct competitor, you could be revealing that data. And even if it's not that specific data, it could be the process in which to manufacture something. There are concerns, not only just for national security, but for, spe for specific industries if you're going to a direct competitor. So in that case, I think it makes a little bit more sense where you might need to have one in addition to a traditional non-disclosure agreement, also known as an NDA. NDAs are also becoming more scrutinized as well. So it'll be interesting to see if that's also pushed back. But it's also, they say it's taking advantage of them. It's also something where both parties are agreeing to it at the time of employment. So if some of those companies, in order to get a job at that company, you might have to sign and not compete for a certain amount of time. This is especially prevalent in technology companies where you're, a lot of the intellectual property is the DNA of the company. If you take that and go somewhere else or start your own competitor, it could cripple that company and you're taking away some of that intellectual property with you, either subconsciously or consciously, depending on the data that you're working with, the processes you go about. So it'll be interesting to see where it goes from there in terms of this practice and the businesses are going to keep fighting to have that ability at a time where businesses are becoming more and more kneecapped and more and more regulations and scrutinizations and it's becoming more and more difficult to run a profitable business in the United States, unfortunately. Now, other political news, you have the Biden administration slapping sanctions for fentanyl, which is one of the most simple political wins. And part of me wonders, well, why didn't you do this years ago or decades ago when, again, you're in politics? But let's dive in. So it sounds good. They're going to put sanctions on fentanyl producers and try to cap that cancer that's destroying America from the inside. The headline sounds good. But, again, you always have to read the body of the actual article or dive in, some might say. Now, specifically, the administration put sanctions on 17 people and entities in China and Mexico that are linked to the production and distribution of counterfeit and fentanyl-laced pills. Now, specifically, the entities are directly or indirectly involved in the sale of the pill press machines, the dye molds, and other equipment used to impress counterfeit trademarkings onto illicitly produced pills that are often laced with sentinel. Now, 
this is such a specific small in terms of the scope of fixing the problem this is more of akin to the cliche of how do you fix employee relations and giving them a free pizza or you see that little cliche of the what is it, the magic tape guy where there's a leaky faucet and just slaps a piece of tape on and in his case that does work it's i guess it's good tape flex seal that's the that's the name of that fancy tape but this is such a narrow scope of how to address the problem. This is, in my opinion, more addressing the symptom of the disease and not the actual disease in and of itself. Such as actually maybe increasing border security since if you look at the distribution and how fentanyl is made, the traditional chain of distribution and creation of the product is the chemicals are first synthesized and created in China. They then ship that over to Mexico. Mexico produces it into its final form. And because there's basically not to, not to decrease the efforts of the US Border Patrol, but because there's such a large amount of border area and such a finite amount of resources towards protecting it, they can just literally walk into the United States with those illicit materials. And of course it goes throughout the United States and may, hundreds of people are dying a day Correct me in the comments if I'm wrong, but that was the last article statistic that I saw about this issue. So it's a big issue and something that every American should be concerned about. Now, it'll be interesting to see what other proposals are put to the table or maybe better, more prudent actions. But, I mean, on the counter, you have Donald Trump and his proposition is death if you're a distributor of drugs, specifically fentanyl. Now, the downside of that in the United States is the depth sentence is so long and cumbersome, it takes decades to actually get that process done, which makes it ineffective and just, in the practice, near useless. And it's not very much of a t deterrent, because again, you have decades to repeal it, you got 20 plus times to repeal it. It's, it's barely used in terms of the US law these days. So time shall tell to see what approach actually fixes the disease and not the symptom. Now, going on to the business blunder of the day, you have Shopify facing lawsuits. Now, Shopify is the Canadian-based e-commerce platform for online stores and retail, point-of-sale systems, basically the back-end logistics for every YouTuber you've seen where they promote some type of coffee or t-shirt or what have you. Speaking of, I should probably do that one of these days, but nevertheless, they're the logistics, the back-end behind all that that make it happen. Now, there's a class action lawsuit for allegedly reducing promised pay for some employees who were recently let go. Now, it's specifically around the severance pay. Now, the lead plaintiff claims that he accepted a $88,000 severance pay, which, gosh dang, that much money that, for a lot of people, that's an unfathomable amount of money to be paid to walk away. But nevertheless, apparently he accepted an offer for $88,000 but then the company lowered it to $44,000 or $36,000 if he didn't accept the new term. Now, lawyers for the class action lawsuit say that Shopify sent a, quote, vague statement about miscalculating, unquote, the payments and that they were seeking $80 million in damages and $50 million in punitive damages. This is according to the Canadian press. Now, if there's an actual contract written out with the specific amounts and the agreements, that should be pretty simple and pretty straightforward to prove in the court. Now, of course, this comes at a very inopportune time for Shopify, as again, like most companies are trying to cut costs just to stay afloat. 
So to have a lawsuit on top of that, that's, and not being straightforward with your employees and having that, I can only assume they maybe, they wrote it down and they said something else, but not to have more, to not have more transparency with your current and former employees and make it all straightforward, make sure, again, all parties are on the same expectations. I mean, and at this most inopportune time, that makes it the business blunder of the day. Thank you so much for taking the time to today. Cannot thank you enough. Also, can't thank you enough for you taking the time to like, subscribe, and comment. Each one of those things helps the channel grow and develop. Also, don't forget to tell your family, tell your friends, tell your coworkers, heck, tell your enemies, tell anyone and everyone to stay safe, fight the good fight.